0: Uh, you, you said T-cells, not B-cells, you might want to... Oh, damn,
1: did I say that? <laughs> you, you can tell I've been in the lab touching T-cells yeah. all day, right? Okay.
2: Welcome to Translation. I'm your host, Seth Bannon, a founding partner at 50 Years, a venture capital firm backing founders using technology to solve the world's biggest problems. Translation is the process of turning basic scientific research into therapies that cure disease, new sources of energy that heal the planet, and other things that move the world forward. This podcast takes a deep dive into scientific achievements with huge potential to improve society. We talk directly with the people advancing the science with their own hands and minds, and focus on how we can translate the science from the bench to the benefit of all. Welcome to Translation.
1: Behind every success, there are people with the courage to try, try
2: to create new sources of energy to fix the carbon in our atmosphere to cure disease hey
1: everyone it's michael chavez co-host of translation fellow at 50 years and graduate student at stanford university Today we are talking with Kevin Parker about his paper, Single Cell Analyses Identify Brain Mural Cells Expressing CD19 as Potential Off-Tumor Targets for CAR-T Immunotherapies that was published in Cell in October 2020. The clinical success of CAR-T cells, or T cells that are engineered to hunt and kill cancer, is not without side effects. While these therapies cure blood cancers, they can also have substantial adverse effects, most notably neurotoxicities. Challenging the idea that this issue is simply a byproduct of using engineered cells, Kevin and his co-author Dennis Migliaroni found a hidden population of healthy cells in the brain that closely resemble the cancer, explaining the toxicity and showing the power of modern sequencing efforts. Kevin performed this work in the labs of Professor Howard Chang and Professor Ansuman Satpathy at Stanford University in collaboration with Professor Avery Posey
2: Jr.'s lab at University of Pennsylvania. Kevin, thanks for joining us on Translation. Yeah, thanks for having me. So before we jump into the really incredible paper, it'd be great just to hear your story. You know, what got you interested in biology initially, and, and then how did that evolve into a love of stem cell bio and CAR-T specifically?
0: I, you know, never thought I was going to go into biology when I was growing up and in high school. You know, I think the framing of biology that I had in my mind, at least in high school, Kind of one where you memorize a lot of facts and you know there's this big book of biology textbook knowledge and biology was just learning all of that and then in college it sort of shifted gears to you know these are all of these big questions that are out there and big problems and how do we actually go about you know understanding them and researching them and and finding answers to those and that kind of you know spirit of i guess exploration really hooked me and got me into biology and then from there i got interested in you know stem cell and de- developmental biology that was really i think a credit to just some of the professors that were teaching those classes there was a really amazing stem cell department at harvard and my sophomore year took the introductory stem cell class really loved it and then that got me down the path of kind of stem cell biology
2: one of my greatest regrets is that i learned biology in high school the same way you did which is that like it's you know you memorize the parts of the cell And you can classify everything. I wasn't taught at all the like bioengineering side, Mm -hmm. right? That you can actually tinker with these things and you can build things with these things. And I think if I had, I have very little doubt that I would have like just gotten completely sucked in. It's unfortunate that it's not taught more that way in high school.
0: Yeah, it's a shame. And it's hard, I think, because, you know, at a college or university, you have this huge research apparatus going on. And you professors can talk about the latest and greatest from whatever they're working on or their colleagues are working on. And that's just, you know, hard to emulate in a high school. But I totally agree. You know, if you could find a way to kind of change it, I think you could hook more people in.
2: Do you consider yourself a biologist turned computer scientist or a coder turned biologist?
0: Definitely a biologist. I I like to think I'm still a biologist. I was trained, I guess, as a developmental and stem cell biologist. So a lot of the classes I took in undergrad had to do with cells differentiating throughout the body and kind of how do we go from one cell the zygote at the very beginning, you know, a fertilized egg, all the way through the different cell types we have, you know, in our body as an adult. And that's kind of a framing of, you know, cells are different. They do different things in the body, they, they work together in different ways to you know form the different tissues and organs. And from there, I got really interested in this question of, well, you know, we have these different cells in our body, we have, you know, liver cells and skin cells and brain cells, and what actually makes them different? And how is it that a liver cell knows to be a liver cell, but not a brain cell? And that was sort of the question that drove me in grad school at the very beginning, trying to understand, you know, what makes different cells different? And what makes them stay different? And why are they different? And how do they respond differently? And one of the ways you can answer that is through these big data genomic analyses, where you get a lot of cells, you make a lot of different measurements, you kind of poke them and perturb them in different ways and kind of see how they respond. And from there, you get a sense of, you know, what locks the brain cell into a brain cell fate and makes it different from a liver cell. And that got me into sort of the computer science, I mean, not really computer science, but more just, you know, data analysis end of things, which you know, it was a really great thing to learn. It was kind of a fun time to be going into grad school. I think that was sort of when a lot of these tools are just coming out and becoming really popular and, and easy to use.
2: By the way, even just that, in high school, you have this sort of inseminated fertilized egg and then it starts to divide, right? And then at some point, some subset of those cells turn into brain cells mm-hmm. and others turn into liver cells and others turn into like foot cells. And the, <laughs> the fact that that happens and that like we don't really fully know how I think that would have been enough to get me hooked in high school. Yeah, yeah, so it was just a bunch of annoying pictures on a table. Exactly, textbook. pictures and, like, fill in the label. Yeah, no, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> that was kind of, I mean,
0: the, I entered a lab one summer in, in college that studied early embryonic development, and I remember, you know, you'd look at, you know, the stages of mouse development going from one cell to two cells to four cells to eight cells, and you'd see it happen day by day mm-hmm. under the microscope. And, you know, it's purely just looking at a clump of cells becoming twice as many, the next day. But just something about that is kind of magical and gets you really interested in this question of how in the world do they know what to do?
2: I totally agree. So can you, in a few sentences, describe your paper to a general audience? Yeah. So, you know, we were focused on CD19 CAR T cell therapy.
0: And so CD19 is this protein that's expressed in B cells and then also cancers of B cells. CD19 CAR T cell therapy is a way of redirecting the immune system to target cells that express CD19. And so if you have a patient who has a B cell cancer, those B cells express CD19 and you make the immune system recognize and then target and kill CD19 positive cells. And this has really great clinical responses, but also frequent and sometimes fatal neurotoxicity. And this wasn't really well understood. And so we looked through a lot of genomics data, you know, going around this question of whether maybe there's a CD19 positive population somewhere within the brain that people hadn't identified and found this previously unrecognized population of CD19 positive cells that were in the brain and lined the vasculature which kind of you know proposes one mechanism that might explain this neurotoxicity.
2: So CAR T's, antigen-targeted cancer therapies, what exactly are these therapies and how do they work? So
0: basically you introduce into a patient's T cells this chimeric antigen receptor. And so this chimeric antigen receptor, or CAR, has sort of two ends, one end that recognizes something and one end that signals. And so they recognize a particular antigen, a particular you know, protein that's expressed on the surface of a given cell population. They see it, they kind of get activated, and, and they kill that population. And so you take a patient's T cells, you take them out of their body, you introduce this CAR into those T cells in vitro, and then put them back into the patient But you have CAR T cells. And then they go after whatever particular target you directed them against to kind of kill and control the population of cancer cells
2: in the body. So you're basically building in a a homing mechanism. You're saying, go find this thing. If you find a cell with that thing, attack it. Yeah, exactly. Cool. And there have been a couple FDA approvals of CAR T's. Is that right?
0: Yeah, so there's a couple that are approved, I think three at the moment, that are related to different B cell malignancies. They're all related to CD19 targeting. And these show like really tremendous efficacy. I mean, they've they've been amazing in patients.
2: And why is this approach, which is inherently fairly complicated, better than something more traditional like chemotherapy?
0: Yeah, so you know, with chemotherapy, you're not really targeting cancer. You're just targeting dividing cells. And cancer cells happen to divide a lot, but so do other cells in your body, like the cells on your gut or the cells that line your mouth, or, you know, your skin cells or hair cells. And that's not really the ideal way you'd target cancer. Ideally, you'd go after just cancerous cells. And so these therapies, you know, like CAR-T cell therapy, are really going after that problem of targeting just cancer cells rather than, you know, any cell that's growing and dividing in your body.
2: So we actually had the opportunity to talk to a a really incredible scientist out of Sloan Kettering, who built a new CAR-T cell therapy against senescent cells on the podcast. And she explained how, you know, the trick with these targeted therapies is to find a protein that exists on the thing you want to attack. But ideally, that's not existent, or is it at extremely low levels on normal cells. And so you focus specifically on B cell malignancies, a specific type of blood cancer that are, you know, it's also called lymphomas or leukemias. What is the antigen or the thing that you need to target here?
0: Yeah, so really, what you need is something that's on B-cells that are cancerous. That's kind of the ideal situation. In this case, people go after CD19, and this is a protein involved in B-cell development. It's expressed throughout the lifetime of a B-cell. And it doesn't actually distinguish between healthy or malignant B-cells. But because patients can live without their B-cells, you can just target all of the patient's B-cells, healthy and malignant. And so CD19 and a particular surface epitope is a thing that you're going after here.
2: How clinically successful have CAR T-cells been targeting against CD19?
0: I mean, it's really been tremendous. So in patients who have, you know, either had relapsed cancers or failed prior courses of treatment. So really, you know, these are the patients with the most severe cancers. You're seeing response rates of, you know, 50 to 90 percent. I mean, complete remissions. It's really, really tremendous.
2: That's fantastic. But it's not all great news, right? There's substantial toxicities involved with using these therapies.
0: Yeah. So there's, you know, a couple different types of toxicities, there's two main ones. One is cytokine release syndrome, which is sort of this general inflammation throughout the body. And then the other is neurotoxicity. And this is one that's been kind of harder to understand. It's been, in some cases, fatal in patients.
1: So there are essentially two hypotheses here as to why you see this neurotoxicity, right? There's either A, that CAR T cells are just generally toxic. And so it's just kind of a byproduct of using this therapy. Or B, that there may be some CD19 in the brain. And really, until recently, it was canon to think that there was no CD19 in the brain. So we just assumed. Toxicity was kind of just what happens when you inject engineered T cells into people. But you pointed to a piece of evidence that made you question that. And can you tell us a little bit more about that?
0: Yeah. So, like you say, a couple different reasons why you might have neurotoxicity. You know, the thing that was interesting, and this really all started from the clinical observations, was that this flavor of, you know, severe, sometimes fatal neurotoxicity, where you see vascular disruptions, blood brain barrier leakiness. Seems to be really associated with CD19, but you don't see it as much with other B-cell targeting therapies. And that sort of posed the idea that there could be something particular about CD19 that's causing this neurotoxicity rather than something associated with CAR T cell therapy in general.
1: So, to hunt for brain CD19, you utilize a tool called single cell RNA sequencing. Can you kind of tell us at a high level how this works?
0: Yeah. So, you know, every cell expresses a different set of genes. So, you know, we have tens of thousands of genes in our body, but not every cell expresses every gene. They express our different genes at different levels. And so, what RNA sequencing lets you do is take a given cell or a given set of cells. And then measure what genes they express and how highly they express them. And you can do this at the single cell level, meaning you take, you know, one individual cell and measure what genes it expresses. Then take another cell, measure what genes it expresses, and do this for, you know, hundreds or thousands of cells or tens of thousands of cells. And that's lets you get a sense of kind of what are the different cell types present in a given tissue or organ and what genes do they express.
1: And how do you get your hands on this data? So, you know,
0: there's two versions of this. So one is that if you are starting from scratch, you have to generate the data. So you take tissue, so brain tissue, you dissociate it up into individual cells. You can, you know, kind of cut it up and then use these enzymes to digest it and break it apart into single cells. And then you, you know, capture each cell and and measure its expression. So people do this for a variety of things, either just wanting to understand brain development, for example, and then they'll upload their data online. And so we are actually able to use a lot of data that people had generated for other experiments. Just sort of this nice thing of kind of of these genomic data sets that are coming online is that we actually used a lot of data that other people had generated for their own experiments and were able to download their data rather than having to regenerate it from scratch.
1: And this is kind of the crux of it, right? Like that part of it is panned out, right? Like there's nothing you really had to do, but the art of it is the data analysis. So the data is essentially a big Excel spreadsheet where on the rows we have each of the brain cells that were sequenced and on the columns we have every human gene. And, And the meat of this matrix is made up of numbers that represent how much each cell is expressing each gene. And so you kind of have this goal to define a specific subset of cells in this matrix that could be CD19 positive. So I just kinda wanna get into your head a little bit about how you take this matrix and do this, right? What's going through your head as you try to hunt down rows that are similar to each other and also are expressing CD19? Yeah,
0: so, you know, there's a couple of ways that you can go about this. You know, to some degree, the question is basically, does any cell in this big Excel spreadsheet, you know, like you're saying you have cells and different genes and their expression values or their counts for each of those different genes. and you know, one way of doing this is just to say, well, are there any cells that express cd 19 anywhere in this data set somewhere? You know, the problem with that is that, sure, maybe you find something, but then the question is, well, how do you really interpret this? Like, you know, there's a cell here and a cell there that express cd 19 but like, what are they? Is it just kind of random noise? Is it all the same cell, similar cell, stuff like that? And so the way that we do this, and, you know, I should say I'm, I'm building off, you know, tremendous work by, by other labs with a lot of the single cell data processing and analysis. But, you know, you can use these tools that other people have developed, like Surat or ScanPy, and use that to really start with the first question of what cell types are present. So in that big Excel spreadsheet, you do kind of the first pass of getting rid of, you know, low quality data. So cells that you just didn't get good information from. But then you say, you know, we have 10,000 cells here. What are kind of the similar cells and what are the dissimilar cells? And so you group them together in a way that lets you say, okay, we have for example, like you know twenty different cell types that are present in this data set. And then you can look and say, okay, this particular set of cells, this cluster, they all express whatever, some particular gene. And then you look up that gene on Google or, or maybe you just know it because you've you know read a lot of papers, and then you say, okay, I think this population is excitatory neurons. And then this other population is macroglia, and this population is endothelial cells. And then you know you have a sense of what cell types are present in this big Excel spreadsheet. And then you go back to that spreadsheet and then you look for, you know, CD19 or whatever other gene you're interested in. And then you can say, OK, this one particular set of cells, they light up for CD19 or there's no CD19 anywhere or it's expressed kind of sporadically in a couple cells just randomly throughout the data set.
1: So you found this subset of cells that both expressed CD19 and were not neurons. What kind of cells did they end up being?
0: Yeah. So we found this population of cells, one particular cluster that seemed to pretty consistently express CD19. And then there's a population of cells called mural cells. So it's a little bit kind of complicated. There's mural cells. And then within mural cells, two main types, pericytes and vascular smooth muscle cells, or VSMCs. These are both you know, the type of mural cell. And so mural cells are cells that line the vasculature. They surround endothelial cells, support the blood-brain barrier. And then pericytes surround smaller blood vessels and capillaries in the brain, whereas VSMCs surround larger vessels in the brain.
1: Even still though, right, so only a subset of these mural cells are expressing CD19. If they are all either one or two of these buckets of cells, why do you think they aren't all expressing CD19? Or is this just an issue with the way we perform single cell sequencing?
0: Yeah, so it's, it's a hard question to answer definitively. So single cell sequencing has this problem of dropout or sparsity where basically, you know, say you take one single cell and measure its expression profile with single cell RNA sequencing. What you get is, you know, say, a thousand different genes that were expressed at some levels, but you also get a lot that weren't expressed. And particularly with genes that are kind of moderately expressed, so not blazing high, but kind of in the middle, you sometimes just miss it by chance. And so the way people tend to do this analysis, and this is why it's nice to kind of group cells that are similar at the very first step of the single cell processing and analysis, is you say, okay, I know that there's this dropout in single cell data, and it's not always going to be the case that even if this population all expresses a particular gene, you know, not all of them are going to be positive for CD19 just because of kind of limitations to the technology. So what you look for is to say, is this particular population generally positive? Like, you know, a lot of the cells are positive for this particular gene, and it seems to be specific to that population. And then for all the cells that didn't express it, you generally just assume this is something to do with kind of the limitations of the technology. So, you know, there's just some kind of things with single cell sequencing that, you know, can be improved down the road.
1: I think all of this begs the question, how do we miss this, right? CD19 targeted therapies are, are such a hot topic right now. And the data set you used is actually publicly available. So why was it canon for so long that CD19 could only be expressed on B cells when the data was kind of right in front of our faces?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a couple <laughs> answers to this, I guess. I mean, one is just that, like you said, it was canon that CD19 was expressed on B cells. It's been known as a marker for B cells for, for many, many years through a lot of work of de- developmental biology I'm um, in immunology, and so it's easy to just kind of make the assumption that it's on B cells and it's a B cell marker. You know, the other answer to it is that the tools for single cell sequencing have really only kind of come to age over the past, you know, decade or so, and a lot of the you know really amazing immunologists who are developing signaling cytokine cell therapy weren't you know genomics people. And I think sometimes just having a bit of a different perspective can be useful. You know, you come in with a different set of tools and now we have all the single cell, you know, sample processing technologies and analysis tools to really understand what all the different cell types are in the body and and what makes them different. So, you know, I think it just took some new technology to really enable the analysis to find this population of cells.
1: So, you know, with this sequencing data, you have pretty substantial evidence to show that CD19 is being expressed in the brain. But you do something next that I really want to highlight here because I, I think it's really important. So you follow up with a tried and true molecular biology method. And just to start, can you tell us what you did to confirm your sequencing results?
0: Yeah, so RNA sequencing measures RNA and, you know, the central dogma biology is that you have DNA that encodes RNA, which encodes protein and CAR T cells ultimately recognize proteins, not RNA. And so we're measuring with single cell RNA sequencing the RNA, you know, intermediate, so to speak, which generally is a, a pretty good, you know, correlate for whether the protein is going to be expressed or not. But it's not directly measuring the protein. And so it was important for us to do, you know, an orthogonal measurement with another assay to kind of confirm the results. You know, this is an important thing in biology: is, is you want to try to do your best to approach the question with different tools and different methods because each one has their own limitations, but we wanted to measure the protein itself. And so we used immunohistochemistry, which is a way of standing for particular proteins using antibodies and recognizing the particular protein that's expressed rather than the the RNA in this case. And so we and I should say, you know, the Stanford Pathology Corps and also collaborators at Penn stained for CD19 with some human brain tissue sections and then found this population of CD19 positive cells that line the vasculature.
1: I think there's another important aspect of that, too, though, right, that I think a lot of people would have ended their investigation just through sequencing data. And while that's cool, I think there's a problem here, which is you're using sequencing to both generate and confirm a hypothesis. Do you kind of agree with that? And is that kind of why you ended up doing the staining?
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, I think at the end of the day, you know, our goal here was to try to make a comment and, you know, contribute to the conversations around clinical treatment. And when you're doing that, you wanna to try to approach it from as many angles as you can. And so to us, you know, the single cell RNA sequencing data was pretty convincing. It, you know, it popped up in a lot of different data sets, different labs for processing the tissue. It was always in this population of mural cells, but you also wanna just try to do it from another angle. And so we looked at this IHC data to try to confirm it.
1: So after confirming that CD19 was in the brain by quite literally taking a picture of it being expressed in the neurovasculature, you follow up with a second analysis using a enormous data set, as you put it, using a meta cell analysis. At a high level, what is this analysis? And why do you look at a second sequencing set to confirm the results?
0: Yeah, so, you know, mural cells are a pretty small proportion of the overall brain tissue. They're pretty rare, they're not found in a lot of data sets. And we wanted to just try to get, you know, as big of a data set as we could to analyze this data. And so Arnold Kriegstein's lab at UCSF has generated, you know, tons of human single cell RNA sequencing data. And we were able to analyze this data to try to take, you know, as you said, a second look. Just because there were so many cells in this data, we had to take a kind of intermediate approach where we didn't analyze individual cells, but kind of groups of similar cells. Just, you know, this is kind of just a computational limitation to make the analysis easier. But basically what we did is, you know, each time you do a single cell sequencing experiment, you're analyzing about 10,000 cells at a time. And so what we did was take those 10,000 cells and kind of look for similar cells within that one data set. And then across all of the, say, 100 data sets, within the individual clusters found in each one, look for similar clusters across each of them, and then kind of use that to sort of pull out subsets of the data. So we're interested in neurovascular cells. So cells that, you know, either were the vasculature or lined the vasculature. And this is a way for us to kind of like fish out just those cells of interest from this overall big data set.
1: And so these big sequencing data sets are called atlases, right? Can you tell me a little bit about the importance of, of doing these atlases?
0: Yeah, you know, it's sort of this, you know, fundamental question of what cells do we have in the body and what Genes do they express? And you know, in some sense, this is kind of an old question that people have gone at for a lot of, you know, many, many years. But we now have these new tools to go about it in a new way and get kind of more information. And so whenever you're doing these treatments, you just really want to know like what cell types are present in the human body. It's kind of like the first order question here. And so these atlas efforts are important because they feed into so many different things. You know, maybe a developmental biologist wants to know, you know, all the cells that are present in your pancreas, for example. And so it's kind of just this first-order base-level understanding of what cells do we have, what genes do they express, what makes them different, and this is what goes into a lot of these ATLAS efforts.
1: So to finally solve the neurotoxicity mystery that has been vexing the field for years, you run one final experiment where you take CD19-targeting CAR T cells and put them into mice that don't have a tumor and don't actually have any B cells, meaning under conventional wisdom, they should not be able to attack anything. When you do this, what do you see?
0: Yeah. So, you know, just to the, the first point to make is that this was all work that was done by Dennis. So Dennis was at Penn with Avery Posey. He's done Switzerland running his own lab. But this is work that are, you know, fantastic collaborators at Penn did. And you can basically break apart the two hypotheses for the neurotoxicity observed in patients with cd 18 cell therapy into, as you mentioned, the, the kind of off-tumor on-target mechanism or the CRS mechanism. And if you think that neurotoxicity is the result of just CRS, so inflammation cytokine release syndrome throughout the body, then you would expect that if you get rid of B cells, so when you put those cartilage cells into a mouse that doesn't have B cells, you should have no CRS because you don't have this massive killing of B cells. And then if you don't have CRS and you think CRS is what causes neurotoxicity, you shouldn't have neurotoxicity. And so that's the experiment that Dennis did. He took these NSG mice that don't have B cells and then gave them C19 targeting CAR T cells and then asked, do you still see neurotoxicity? And he was able to measure this with some kind of clever techniques and was able to find that he did see still some blood and barrier disruption. So kind of this vascular leakiness. And, you know, the mouse picture is still, I think, a little more complicated. One of the things that we ended up finding, other people have found this as well, is that expression between human and mouse isn't always the same. And so in this particular case, it seems like the CD19 expression profile is a little different between human and mouse. It's expressed in maybe a different population of cells. It's not quite as high in mural cells in mice. But at the same time, you do this kind of, you know, really elegant experiment where you get rid of B cells and then ask, do you still see neurotoxicity? And that's what he saw. You still see this blood and barrier disruption. So it's a really important experiment. And I think You know, points to a lot of further work that
1: can be done here. Just as an aside, I think it's crazy that nobody had done that experiment before, right? It seems like the obvious control experiment NSG mice are used everywhere. That was awesome that you guys are the first to to Yeah,
0: but you know, I mean it's it's an important thing because if you go after, you know, a new treatment, you often don't know where to look if you're trying to understand side effects. So, you know, a mouse is good, but it's not gonna communicate to you in the same way that a, a human patient would. And so when you do these mouse experiments. You know, there's a couple of things you know to look at, like, you know, to look at whether the B cell cancer model you have going on shrinks, but you don't know to look at, well, you know, there's hundreds of different side effects you could have there. And so if you don't have a sense of kind of what to look at from the very beginning, it can make it hard to really pinpoint it from to know to do the CD19 NSG mouse experiment as opposed to some other experiment that you might think of.
1: So, you know, mystery solved, CAR T cell toxicity has been due to hidden CD19 in the brain all along. And if I happen to be a cell engineer and wanted to build a cell that had an increased safety profile, what would I do with this information?
0: So... You know, I guess I would back up first and say there's still a lot of complexity here that hasn't really been solved. You know, there's caveats to any paper, nothing is perfect, there's always more work to be done. And in our case, the brain is a really complicated organ. And you know, what we were looking at is really a few individual snapshots of the brain. So we didn't necessarily look at every region, every time point, every state of the adult brain. It's you know, a, a pretty hard thing to go after like every potential possible scenario here. So, you know, you can imagine that during inflammation or CRS, you know, you have gene expression changes. And it's not something we really understand or, or fully modeled here. Or the different parts of the brain express different levels of CD18, or maybe some people express more CD18 than other people in mural cells you know, there's this kind of clinical observation you can go back to, which is that not everybody gets neurotoxicity. Some, but not all those people get severe neurotoxicity. And then unfortunately, in some cases, this is fatal, but not everybody gets neurotoxicity. So there's a lot more here to be done to kind of just understand, you know, what could be going on in all these different scenarios. You know, that being said, there's a lot of different ways you can imagine going about, you know, understanding this in the future. So there's really fantastic work that's been done out of UCSF, you know, developing these syn-notch approaches where you can go after just not one particular gene, not just one particular antigen, but combinations. So you could try to engineer a cell that has a better safety profile by, say, going after CD19 and something else and using that kind of and something else to be a better marker for B cells. You could also imagine just going after a different marker, you know, altogether to begin with. So there's a lot of work that can be done here to try to, you know, engineer the cells to be a little bit, you know, safer and more precise.
1: Zooming back into CD19 therapies, though, you actually suggested some targets that could get around these mural cells. Can you tell us about uh, how you found these and what they were?
0: Yeah, so when you do the single cell analysis, you know, there's a first order question of, is there CD19 somewhere in the brain? And then you say, okay, it seems like there is, what cells express it? And then you say, okay, now we know this population of cells that are mural cells seem to express cd 19 What else do they express? And you can use that to then kind of, you know, just from the data, propose a list of genes that are most differentially expressed between B cells and mural cells, because now you know you have this kind of off-target potential population. And so we could just use the single cell sequencing data, you know, because we have not just like one row in the six cell spreadsheet, but a whole bunch of other ones, use information from all the other genes to kind of rank, order different genes based off of being most differentially expressed, and then use those to propose other markers people could use if they wanted to go about these, you know, combinatorial approaches, like I mentioned.
1: Can you tell us about some failures during the process of doing this and and how it helped build toward your final outcome?
0: Yeah, so there's like two big ones, I guess. You know, one is just that publishing a paper is kind of a long and arduous task. And, you know, usually, you know, for people that aren't in science and kind of aren't in the weeds of this, you just see a paper come out and you're like, oh, you know, some, some new study came out. But there's a lot of, you know, you submit the paper first, you have to do you know revisions. Maybe the first journal says no, you go somewhere else. So in our case, this paper actually kind of grew with time. We first submitted it kind of just as more of a just short observation, but then ended up growing and building this over time just because kind of due to some nuances of the publishing academic complex, it kind of wasn't the right fit for a short just comment. The other thing was sort of the, you know, complexity with mouse versus human. You know, as you can imagine, it's hard to do human experiments for, you know, a variety of reasons. And as we sort of dug into this more, you know, Dennis and Avery and and Carl June at Penn proposed this really nice NSG experiment using the, the mouse model that doesn't express CD19. But then when we sort of dug into it deeper and it looked like CD19 was different, you know, there was just a layer of complexity here that we had to spend a little more time trying to understand. And there's still more work here to be done, but I think... You know, that was a challenge to this, which is that the real experiment that you'd want to do, which is going into patients, is not something you can really easily do here.
1: And I think that first point that you made of, you know, publishing something small and it growing over time is really important for the PhDs listening out here, right? Yeah. Like, I think we all end up wanting to try to hit a home run and hit sell nature science on the first go around. But sometimes science just leads you on its own direction, right?
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, somehow this paper ended up getting bigger and kind of moving up the chain with time, which, you know, was a really... Fortunate thing that it worked out. But publishing is never, or it sometimes is, but it's very, very rarely just, you know, a single shot to a journal and it gets in. Usually it's a pretty circuitous, you know, go around, change a bunch, try different places, path that ends up taking a long time. And that's, you know, definitely what it was here as well.
1: So you were obviously super zoomed in on finding a potential mechanism for CD19 CAR T cell toxicities here. But really what you did is make a process to systematically define rare populations of healthy cells that express an antigen you may want to target in disease cells. Do you advocate running this process every time we develop a new targeted therapy?
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, you know, you always want as much information as you can possibly get. And when you're putting something into a patient, you know, where you don't have kind of the perfect experiment you can do, like, you know, a a mouse model is not going to recapitulate human biology. You want to really understand that human biology as best you can before you put it into a patient. And so, you know, it's somewhat complicated to do every single time. You know, you have to have the right data set and know what to look for and, and stuff like that. But I definitely think this sort of approach should be incorporated into kind of the clinical development and, and approval pipeline.
1: I think that's a great point. Are we even capable of doing this on a whole body level? Is there an atlas for every tissue and organ in order for us to really get the system done?
0: Yeah, so we're definitely capable of doing it. You know, it's, it's a hard problem, but also a, a solvable problem, at least in the sense of you can get, you know, most of the way there. Kind of, you know, as I mentioned, the brain's complicated, you have different cell states, inflammation, people differences, regional differences, and and you can't always capture all of that. But, you know, one really nice example of this is all the work that was done to understand sort of the lungs and the airway system as it relates to COVID, because people wanted to know, like, where is ACE2 expressed? And so the whole research community really came together to understand these kind of lung and airway single cell atlas expression profiles. And I think it's a really nice example of kind of having a big problem, but it's also a solvable one that people can do when they all get together.
2: So what needs to happen, what technology needs to be developed to generate all that data that you'd need to fully leverage this method?
0: So, you know, there's kind of two parts to this. So one is that the technical end of getting a tissue, processing it, dissociating it's still not fully solved. I mean, in some cases, it's definitely doable and solvable for some tissues. You know, blood is easy because you have the cells in a liquid suspension. Other tissues like the lung or the skin are maybe more connected and, and delicate or the brain. And it's harder to just take them apart but keep the cells intact. So there's sort of that end of just technical sample processing. That's still something that is, you know, it's an unsolved problem. The single cell sequencing, I mean, you know, props to 10 genomics here. They've really done an amazing job of of developing these tools. and, And they're certainly still improving them, but they're already really amazing. And then on the analysis end, it's definitely a solvable thing again. But right now, if you want to do, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of cells, it takes a very long time and the tools just aren't really built to analyze that much data all at once. So it's, you know, there's some kind of ingenuity that needs to go on into that end of things as well.
2: So folks developing CAR-Ts and other targeted therapies are, are taking a cue from CD19 and branching out to find new targets with therapeutic potential. In the near future, how do you see your method fitting into those efforts? I
0: think the question that we proposed here is sort of how can you try to understand you know, rationally what target to go after and use all these genomic data sets to try to do it. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of work in developmental biology, for example, to propose CD18 to begin with. But I think we feel like this sort of analysis can kind of complement that effort and just provide another you know source of data where you can go and say, I want to find a new marker for some other cell type. And here's a way and a tool that you can use to do that.
2: So that sort of brings us to the next question. So, you know, this work seems to have some serious translation potential, and that obviously gets us pretty excited, given the name of the podcast. How might this work be translated? What are some possible paths there?
0: Yeah. So, you know, since the papers come out, we've gotten a lot of questions from clinicians and academics who are working on, you know, CAR T cell therapy or other targeted therapies going after different genes and saying, you know, either we have this observation in the clinic, or we want to understand this particular target we're going after this therapy we're going after, you know, can you help us try to take this approach and understand, you know, you know, a a blood cancer of a different type or or a solid tumor cancer or something like that. And so that's one of the things that that we've been kind of helping out with is just doing this analysis to help other people understand what it is that they're going after. And there's a lot of, you know, other things you can imagine doing. So seeding. Teen T cell therapy is really the first one to prove that you know you can use CAR T cell therapy to try to treat cancer, but you can try to understand you know other targets. Maybe CD19 isn't the best one for B cells. Maybe you could find you know something like CD20 or CD22, and maybe one of them is better. Or try to do these combinatorial approaches where you use these logic gated cars and go after you know CD19 and something else, or you know two B cell markers. There's also kind of a, a not gated car, so you can say. If I see C19, but then I see something else that's a marker for mural cells, like turn off the CAR T cell, like, you know, turn off the signaling, quiet it. So you can do both kind of the AND logic gate and the NOT logic gate. But then all of these require you to understand kind of what's expressed where, what are the cell types you're trying to avoid, what are the cell types you're trying to target, and what, you know, genes they express. So there's a lot of stuff you can do here to try to understand both kind of how to make things safer, how to make things better. For both B-cell cancers, other blood cancers, other solid tumors. So there's a lot to be done here.
2: Very cool. It sounds like there's huge potential and sounds like there's an opportunity to do a lot of that outside of academia, or I don't really know what I'm doing as a, as a VC. So I'm <laughs> excited to see what comes of all that. So, okay, I want you to imagine it's 10 years from now and and everything has just gone perfectly, right? The method was, it was improved. There were no roadblocks. What can you imagine being done with this? How might the world look different because of this? And I really want you to reach down and answer with your most optimistic self here.
0: Yeah, so I think, you know, the thing that really comes to mind is this promise of personalized treatments and personalized medicine. You know, I think it's something that gets thrown around a lot because it's sort of a, you know, buzzword or, you know, something like that. What you really want to do is have a patient come in, patient has a particular cancer and a tumor, and you say, okay, this patient should get this treatment because everybody's cancer is going to be different. This person's cancer has a mutation here, or this person's cancer expresses this gene, but not that gene. You know, maybe there's five different B cell markers you could use and which one should you use for which patient? So I think to do that, you have to do a lot of things. You know, one of them is develop all these different treatments to kind of cover the spectrum of potential human, you know, malignancies you want to go after. And then the other is figure out a way to really understand which patient should get which one, or maybe even take a patient and develop something, you know, totally personalized, like take a patient's, you know, tumor cells and figure out this patient should really get this CAR-T or this TCR therapy. So in my mind, that's sort of the hope. I mean, I guess, you know, the other end here is that a patient doesn't get chemotherapy. When patients come in with cancer, you know, you never do this sort of blanket treatment of just let's kill all the cells that are dividing. You know, you really hope that patients don't come in with chemotherapy because I think there's a lot of ways you could try to go about treating cancer in a more targeted, specific, directed way. So I guess that's the hope. You know, a patient comes in, you really understand their cancer and what makes it specific and what makes it vulnerable, and then go in with a treatment that really goes after that particular axis to try to eradicate it in a, you know, specific way that doesn't interfere with anything else in their body.
2: I love that. I mean, listen, it's it's obvious that 50 years from now, we're not gonna be treating people with chemotherapy, right? And so the future that I see you building towards is one where we more quickly can say, man, chemo was a terrible way of treating this, right? It's <laughs> the best we have now, but it's it's clearly got some big downsides. I think that ex- that, that future is incredibly exciting. And so, Kevin, thanks for coming on the podcast and, and sharing your work with us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me and
0: for the, the great questions and conversation.
2: <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that episode of Translation. If you're an author of an upcoming paper in bio or know of any interesting papers dropping soon and want to hear from the authors, send us an email to translation at 50.vc. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, good bio.